Welcome to LilyPod Episode 8, The Power of Thought. Welcome to LilyPod with Jeff and Kathy Teichert. We're certified life coaches and members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. LilyPod is a production of Love in Later Years, also known as Lily. Our messages are directed towards mid-singles and remarried couples. We also welcome those who enjoy personal growth and enriching relationships. Thank you, Kathy. And I want to tell you as we're about to begin this podcast tonight that this is an important subject and we're going to go through quite a number of scriptures and I'm saying that because there are some profound truths and and we're going to be using the scriptures more than we do in most podcasts but I think with good reason and if you bear with us I think you'll really enjoy this so when we think of the power of thought I want to begin with the idea that we are beings of light and intelligence. And in section 88 of the Doctrine and Covenants, which is called, or was called in the early era of the church, uh, the olive leaf, uh, many of the revelations that Joseph Smith received had names, and this was called the olive leaf. And there's a verse that mentions Jesus Christ as he that ascended up on high, as also he descended below all things, literally from the top of heaven to the bottom of hell, in that he comprehended all things, that he might be in and through all things, the light of truth, which truth shineth. This is the light of Christ. If you want to compare this to Star Wars, it's the force, that thing that binds the universe together, that all-pervasive uh, uniting spirit. This is the light of Christ, as also he is in the sun and the light of the sun and the power thereof by which it was made, as also he is in the moon and the light of the moon and the power thereof by which it was made, as also the light of the stars and the power of by which they were made, and the earth also and the power thereof, even the earth upon which you stand. And so it it's looking at all creation and saying it all bears that brooding, pervading influence of Jesus Christ because he is the creator and savior of all of it. And it has his fingerprints on it, if you will. And the light which shineth, which giveth you light, is through him who enlighteneth your eyes, which is the same light that quickeneth your understandings. So this is how we gain knowledge of divine truth as well, because we can find it inside ourselves because we are his creation and because he saved us with his blood, which light proceedeth forth from the presence of God to fill the immensity of space, the light which is in all things, which giveth life to all things, which is the law by which all things are governed, even the power of God who sitteth upon his throne who is in the bosom of eternity, who is in the midst of all things. So some very profound ideas there 
uh, section 93 of the Doctrine and Covenants um, adds a couple of things that I think are important to this discussion. And when we think about truth and about thought, it's interesting. In section 93, verse 24, Joseph Smith reveals, and truth is knowledge of things as they are, as they were, and as they are to come. Now, at face value, that sounds really simple, right? Truth is knowing things that are, things that were, and things that will be. But verse 25 is very interesting. And whatsoever is more or less than this is the spirit of that wicked one who was a liar from the beginning. Whoa. So what would be more or less than knowing things that are, that were, and that are to come? Well, I think, among other things, it's all of the meanings we hang on it. It's all of the interpretation of things. Uh, it's our opinions, our thoughts. Right. It is the spin we put on it, if you will, the stories we tell ourselves. And what I think is interesting is most of the time we hear those stated as truth. Right. And, and very often we just believe the things that we, that we think without critically second guessing them. And is that a tool of that wicked one who was a liar from the beginning? I think at times it can be. And, and so it raises the question, do we have a choice regarding what we think? And I would like to answer that. Um, verse 30, same section, all truth is independent in that sphere in which God has placed it to act for itself as all intelligence also. That includes you and me, right? Otherwise, there is no existence. So, so we are beings of intelligence, and we are independent in the sphere in which God has placed us. And if we were not able to act for ourselves, we wouldn't exist. And it follows that directly, saying, Behold, here is the agency of man, and here is the condemnation of man. Because that which was from the beginning is plainly manifest unto them, and they receive not the light. And so how does the wicked one that we just spoke of use our agency against us? Well, he convinces us of all kinds of stories, and we... we expand the truth by misinterpreting what it all means. And we do that instead of receiving the light. Now, Moses learned the difference between light and darkness. And uh, we went over this in a, another podcast. But I want to repeat one little part of it. It came to pass that Moses looked upon Satan and said, Who art thou? This is in chapter 1, verse 13. For behold, I, Moses, 
am a son of God in the similitude of his only begotten. And where is thy glory that I should worship thee? And so Moses, he knows who he is and that gives him power to resist temptation. But he has, he has been, has received the revelation of who he is. And, and then he says something very profound. Blessed be the name of my God, for his spirit hath not altogether withdrawn from me, or else where is thy glory, for it is darkness unto me. So he sees the difference between light and darkness. He's experienced the glory of God, and when he sees the glory of Satan, it feels dark. Kathy, what, what is the difference between light and darkness for you? Darkness feels oppressive and light feels free and peaceful. Right. I think light is elevating in that, in that sense. Uh, also light gives us vision. We can, we can see more clearly. Whereas I think we have a lot of fear associated with darkness. We wonder what's lurking out there that we can't see. And of course, we, the scriptures say that the word of God is a lamp unto our feet. Um, another metaphor that is kind of powerful there. And it was, we talked about in previous episodes, Moses got to know the character of God. And by knowing his character, he knew himself. And he knew his relation to light and dark. Right. And he, he had the power because he knew that to choose his thoughts and he he was able to tell the difference between god and satan and their influences right and to clarify we hadn't talked about moses in previous podcast but we had talked about getting to know the character of god and its importance in ourselves knowing who we are because right. we're his children and I think when... And that's a good example that Moses did that. When we look at some of the things that many of our mid-single friends and we ourselves have gone through, uh, whether it's the death of a spouse or a divorce, or for some that uh, have not married at this point in their lives, uh, there can be you know, a certain amount of disappointment for them as well that maybe they had relationships that didn't work out or maybe they're discouraged because they haven't had all that many relationships and wonder if it's even possible for them. Well, I want to talk about that for a second in terms of, of thought and, and how we think about our particular situations. Because we can we can come up with all kinds of stories. And I, and I can tell you some of the ones, some of the things that went through my mind. I didn't get married to get divorced. Uh, we were sealed before God, angels and witnesses in the house of God. And God doesn't like divorce. And yet here I am. And I remember thinking my life was over. Right. And yet in reality, my life was definitely not over. <laughs> right. Um, and I think that stories, and I never really realized this was happening, but whenever I have conversations with people in my head that aren't actually happening, those are stories being, or even dramas or plays being 
uh, it's being played out in my own mind by people who aren't actually there. Right. <laughs> I'm sure we all do it. I, I think a lot of the meanings we give these things, as Kathy was just uh, talking about, uh, and, and I've given some examples too, but they all kind of in some ways amount to it wasn't supposed to be this way. Uh, something happened that put the cosmos out of balance and I'm suffering because of it. And I want to tell you that when we think that way, literally, is that knowledge of things as they are, or is that a meaning we're attaching to it, a judgment we're putting on it? It wasn't supposed to be like this. Is there shame associated with it? In fact, there's nothing really literal about that statement. Right. It's just a thought. Right. So who am I to say it wasn't meant to be this way? Now, what if I chose to accept what happened. I like the serenity prayer, you know, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. And, and I like the rest of it too, but I want to focus on that part of it. I also believe that acceptance uh, gives us serenity. So not only do we want serenity so we can accept, accept the things we cannot change, but we want acceptance so we can have serenity because acceptance creates serenity. What if we just accepted, maybe it is supposed to be this way. Maybe God allowed me to go through this loss or this trial to make room for more love in my life. Maybe there was something really important for me to learn from all of this. Maybe God has a plan for me that is greater and more glorious than anything I could have conceived of for myself. And I can say, you know, with uh, Kathy sitting next to me here, that if it hadn't been for the greatest trial of my life, which was my divorce from my children's mom, I wouldn't have this amazing woman as my wife. And uh, really understand completely what it's like to love and be loved in a marriage. And so the thing I went through, as painful as it was, was a tender mercy. But I can understand that now, and it's an elevating thought, right? Sometimes I think we have to have that thought, and we receive the witness after the trial of our faith. And it took us a long time to find each other. And so for all of that time, we were either making life easier by accepting things that happened along the way or by fighting against it. And, you know, I can actually specifically think of some instances where drama happened between someone I was dating and we broke up and I, the relationship, the dating relationship ended and I, I had to choose. I had to choose whether to go into that spiraling uh, cobweb of thoughts or to radically accept what happened and just love and move on and, you know, appreciate the relationship for what it was and um, go forward. And, you know, it reminds me actually of a time when a date of mine plucked a, a leaf from a tree and said, you know, plants are so amazing. They can take poison and turn it into life because that's literally what our plants do and as 
plants become more alive and vibrant through the poison they're given, we can learn a lesson from that. Right. And what was the lesson you took from that? Because you you kept the leaf, right? I still have a leaf that I, I actually plucked myself when I needed to radically accept something. And I did it in symbolism of my own personal acceptance of something that could poison me or it could give me light. Right. So going back to the idea, here is the agency of man and here is the condemnation. And if you want to substitute the word, here is the poison of man, because that which was from the beginning is plainly manifest unto them and they receive not the light. So if the Lord allows us to go through something really difficult, like a divorce or the death of a spouse, I went through the death of a brother and and Kathy also went through the death of a sister, uh, something we share in common. But, you know, there's a tendency in those situations to think, I mean, my brother was only 17. I think Kathy's sister was, what, 23 or something? 19. Like 19, so yeah. close to the same age. And so, yeah, I think it's it's tempting in that situation to think, well, he or she was was too young to die. Uh, it wasn't supposed to be this way. And for some reason, when this happened in my family, totally unexpected, of course, we, for some reason, it just dawned on me, I think through the spirit, that it was her time. It We didn't know it would be her time, but it was. And that thought itself, I think, helped me accept and heal so much faster than if I would have told myself, she's too young. It shouldn't have happened. I mean, of course, you know, those thoughts are going to happen. But I think because of that spiritual witness, for me, healing was so much um, better and so much, um, I was able to give a talk at her funeral without, um, losing it. And, um, we all did actually my entire family. And I know you said that you probably made it a little harder on yourself because it didn't seem right. I mean, I, I think that for the most part, the pain was about his loss. And knowing that I would miss him and, you know, that I, a person that I loved was no longer here with us on the earth. And that part um, is as it should be because. That's just authentic pain yeah, and, and grief. Yeah, because we love. Right. As President Nelson said, you know, we can't take the sorrow out of death without taking the love out of life. But but that is different. Let us Let us, and I say that because I don't want you to think, and I'm sure Kathy doesn't, that we think there's something wrong with grief. That's not what we're saying. We're saying that grief, whether it's from a divorce or a death of a loved one or anything like that, there is a, a, a real authentic pain. And sometimes we need to choose that pain for a while and we need to feel our feelings. Right, because if we don't, it can get buried in us and that's not healthy. The, the problem is when they get laden with all these judgments like, the cosmos is out of balance. You know, it wasn't right that this person should have died or, uh, you know, it wasn't meant to be this way. It's no, not I, supposed to be this way. I just had a thought because of agency, everything is exactly as it should be. 
even if it doesn't seem like it should be because of agency, it totally is. Right. We have our choices. Everyone else has their choices and that's how things happen. Right. And, and I agree with what Kathy said earlier that if we can feel the authentic pain without putting a lot of judgments on it uh, and without thinking it's not supposed to be this way, uh, my life is over, you know, the, these kinds of, of judgments, um, then we, we do heal faster and more fully, I believe. It, the idea that it isn't supposed to be this way will get you stuck and can keep you stuck for a long time. And we've seen that. And I did it after my divorce for several years, um, just feeling like it wasn't supposed to be this way and feeling really bad about how my life had turned out. And heck, my life was only about half spent. Uh, it hadn't turned out yet. And I get to spend the, the next half with uh, Kathy and you know, it's an amazing blessing. I want to cite an example of elevating our thoughts that I find in the scriptures. And this is really quite remarkable. Um, we know in Alma chapter 8, Alma has gone to preach to the people in Ammonihah. And they were a very proud uh, people with hard hearts and... They were plotting to destroy the freedom of the Nephites. And they, they rejected Alma and his message. And verse 14 says, It came to pass that while he was journeying thither, Alma's leaving the city. He's going to wipe the dust off his feet. Being weighed down with sorrow, wading through much tribulation and anguish of soul. Now, what kind of feelings are these? These are heavy feelings, right? There's a lot of darkness in these, these thoughts and feelings. Being weighed down with sorrow, wading through much tribulation and anguish of soul because of the wickedness of the people who were in the city of Ammonihah. It came to pass while Alma was thus weighed down with sorrow. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared unto him, saying, Blessed art thou, Alma, Therefore, lift up thy head. Think about that language. Lift up thy head. I actually hear Tony Robbins talk about that. You know, he'll have people experiment, you know, hunch your shoulders and look down like you're looking down at your cell phone or something. And then he, he says, square your shoulders and look up and see how that affects your mood. Well, it's true. There's a TED talk about power posture. <laughs> right. And this angel tells Alma, Lift up your head, basically. Square your shoulders. Lift up thy head and rejoice. Okay, now keep in mind, Alma at this moment is weighed down with sorrow and tribulation and anguish of soul, very heavy words. And he says, lift up thy head and rejoice, for thou hast great cause to rejoice. For thou hast been faithful in keeping the commandments of God from the time which thou receivest thy first message from him. Behold, I am he that delivered it unto you. And he tells Alma to go back and try again with the people of Ammonihah. And what did Alma do? In verse 18, he returned speedily to the land of Ammonihah. He didn't drag himself back. He didn't, okay, grudgingly go back. He went back speedily 
with enthusiasm and had something about the people of Ammonihah changed? No. Alma had changed. Alma's mood and his thoughts had changed because was it the angel that made him change? I don't think so. I mean, Laman and Lemuel saw angels and sometimes they changed for a little while, but ultimately they, they never really did. It was words that any good friend could have told Alma. So his energy shifted. His right. story about his situation changed, but the facts didn't. Right. I mean, and, and the angel didn't tell him people are going to, in Ammonihah, are going to accept your message. In fact, they didn't. Uh, he just said, look, you've done the best you can. You're a worthy, strong, mighty teacher of the gospel. Now go back to Ammonihah and do your job and lift your head up and rejoice. And Alma did. And Alma was then focused on not, am I going to be able to convert everybody, but what is it I can do? And he knew he could carry out the Lord's errand, whether or not people accepted him or, or not. And, uh, and he had great blessings in Ammonihah, despite being rejected by the people, one of which he met his mission companion, Amulek, uh, which became a, an eternal blessing for him. Another element of about thoughts, I, I want to turn to... Jacob. And again, I'm going to read you some really heavy thoughts. Jacob 2.35, the last verse in that chapter. Behold, ye have done greater iniquities than the Lamanites, our brethren. Now, Jacob is really being kind of rough on, on the men in his audience. Ye have broken the hearts of your tender wives and lost the confidence of your children because of your bad examples before them. And the sobbings of their hearts ascend up to God against you. And because of the strictness of the word of God, which cometh down against you, many hearts died pierced with deep wounds. So he's talking to, he's talking about people that have really been hurt. He did not mince words. Right. And then he speaks directly to those people that have been hurt. And look at the counsel he gives them. But behold, I, Jacob, would speak unto you that are pure in heart. Look unto God with firmness of mind. Mind has a lot to do with our thoughts, right? Now, what does firmness indicate? I think the opposite of firmness might be the emotional roller coaster, the, the out-of-control chaos. But he's admonishing them to firmness of mind firmness of thoughts, and pray unto him with exceeding faith, and he will console you in your afflictions. It goes on, O oh, all ye that are pure in heart, lift up your heads and receive the pleasing word of God. How do you receive it? Well, Joseph Smith taught that the condemnation of man is that uh, they that which they had received from the beginning um, they, they didn't receive the light, correct? And so in this case, he's admon Alma is admonishing the pure in heart to lift up your heads and receive the pleasing word of God. We receive it through our thoughts, right? We can be baptized, but that is meaningless unless 
in our thoughts we have accepted and embraced the message. Receive the pleasing word of God and feast upon his love, for ye may, if your minds are firm forever. So he mentions again that that term firmness of mind, and that's fascinated me since my mission. I remember a time when I was really feeling low and, uh, you know, I felt like nobody understood me and, you know, anybody who really heard what I had to, what I was thinking would think I was silly and stupid. And I realized I was kind of silly and stupid because um, my mind wasn't firm. It was being blown about by other people's thoughts and opinions. And some of them weren't even their real thoughts and opinions. It was stuff I had made up in my head. And so, but that scripture changed my life. And since then I have I have been striving to develop more firmness of mind, more faith and more stability, right? Mental health, stability. Right. So when we're going through difficulties, we want to encourage you to have, uh, to have authentic pain authentic grief, but without the judgment and anxiety attached to it. So anyway, we want to encourage you to experience your feelings and feel them. We also want to encourage you to experience them authentically and not have to hang a lot of unnecessary meanings on them not to think it wasn't supposed to be this way in whatever form we say that. Right. That just adds baggage to something that's already heavy. Right. And I, I want to give a couple of examples of, of this. There's a friend of mine and we're going to call him Stan. That's not his real name, but Stan, uh, was divorced and and literally had one of the worst divorce stories I had ever heard. And for various legal finagling reasons, he wasn't able to see his kids. uh, Couldn't, couldn't even really talk to them on the phone. Uh, I mean, a lot was taken from him. And I at first found it really therapeutic to talk to him because we both had some similar feelings and experiences, although his story was worse than mine, I I have to say. But at first it was kind of therapeutic to just kind of sit there together and both bellyache about what had happened to us and, you know, characterize our former spouses as being really evil. And did it make you feel better? Well, momentarily, yes. But so it's tempting. It is tempting to do that. And I think in the beginning, one of the ways you release trauma is you talk things through with with people. And I did that with everybody who would listen for a while. And but, that is why we have therapists and life coaches. <laughs> right. The problem with doing that, um, and, and I'm not saying you shouldn't do it at first, but the problem is you can get really stuck that way too. Uh, I mean, there's a certain amount of processing you need to do but 
uh, Stan is still really stuck. He was divorced before I was. And, you know, 10 years hence, he's still talking about his divorce day and night to anyone who will listen. And I, I got to a point where I kind of needed to distance myself, not wanting to, um, you know, not wanting to hurt him, but just removing really, the temptation. Yeah. Needing to, to be at a, at a higher place. And so I, I talk to him as often as I think I can be elevating to him without being dragged down by it. And I actually really love that. That's a, a pretty smart way to go about a friendship that you want to, to be elevating to, but not dragged down by. Right. I mean, in, in Luke, 22 31 through 32 it says when thou art converted strengthen thy brethren that's jesus talking to peter his chief apostle and you would think well wouldn't his chief apostle already be converted and in fact um prior to that jesus had told peter when when you know he asked whom say ye that i am Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, yes, flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my father, which is in heaven. So he knew Peter had a testimony. So why did he say when thou art converted later on? Well, converted is more than having a testimony. Converted is being changed. When you convert something, you change it. You change it from one thing, you convert it to something else, right? So it'd be when thou art changed. When you are transformed. And so the more you're transformed, the more power you have to interact and strengthen other people without being dragged down by their dark energy. And so that's an important thing to sort of keep in mind. I want to also mention that I had so many good friends during that dark time. And I, I, I did have enough presence of mind to know that when I was processing, I would wear any one person out. And uh, so I had several <laughs> good friends that I reconnected with um, when my marriage was breaking down. And, and I want to talk about one person uh, among many. I mean, there were, you know, seven or eight really super good friends. One was my cousin, for example. But So what you're saying is that if uh, we want to use good friends as therapists, spread it out. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Don't burden one person with having to hear your divorce story more than a hundred times, say. <laughs> but now there was a, a very good friend that I had known in high school, and she actually went to a different school. Her name was Jana, and that is her real name. I'm not I'm gonna use her real name because I have nothing but good to say about her. But uh, she was on the debate team of a school we competed against and we became good friends in high school and, and we still are. But I remember she was one of the people that was most supportive of me during that difficult time. And I remember <laughs> musing with her about the Nat King Cole song, Smile. I don't know how many of you are familiar with it, but it goes, it begins, smile though your heart is aching smile even though it's breaking when there are clouds in the sky you'll get by and and anyway it's all about smiling even when things are bad and eventually you'll see the sun come shining through and i was telling her i like the song and she said i don't i hate it and i said you hate it why and she said 
I want you to be happy because you're happy, not because you're faking it in the middle of a deep depression. And I could sort of see her point so too. So she appreciated realness. <laughs> well, I don't think she was saying be depressed, I, but she was definitely saying, I want you to be happy because you're happy. I don't want you to smile even though your heart's breaking. So she wanted authentic emotion. Right. And she wanted me to be happy, but she wanted me to not feel the way I felt at that time, uh, whether I was smiling or not. Right. Um, but I also think that song has a point because if you do smile though your heart is aching and smile even though it's breaking um you may smile because there are moments when you're able to to think about it in a more elevating way like maybe god has allowed me to go through this to make room for more love in my life or, or perhaps you put it aside for a minute just for a minute to be grateful for something different right so Anyway, I'm, I'm grateful to Jana and my many other friends that, that helped me through that hard time and that in their own loving ways encouraged me to, uh, you know, to, to be able to think differently and, and ultimately to feel differently. Yeah, I'm grateful for that too. And I, I know that I had my share of spread out therapists, people who were so loving and kind and willing to listen and lend their ear and lend their experience and advice and um, counsel. And it was uh, a very confusing time. And I don't even remember very clearly everyone I talked to, but I, I did my best to be as clear about the situation as I could be um, fair-minded. And, uh, I think that helped keep me closer to the truth, but I certainly had my share of stories. I think everyone does to some degree when things happen that we aren't expecting that kind of take us by surprise. And, uh, I think it's our human brains just do this story thing. And, uh, and yet it's, we've been counseled to have a firmness of mind in the truth as of things as they have been are and will be and nothing more or less than that that isn't in the light right and we realize that there's no such thing as it's not the way it's supposed to be it's always the way it's supposed to be so yeah i mean it that's that's super uh, super important that can even help us with any regret we might have about our own choices. We're exactly where we're meant to be right here, right now, right where we are, because it's where we are. When we realize that our stories are running us, that's a profound moment of transformation because then you can, you can change your story. You can realize that your thoughts are just thoughts and you can let them pass and adopt new thoughts. There's a, a favorite book of mine by the great Christian writer C.S. Lewis, who you may or may not know was an Oxford Don and had a PhD in medieval studies, very interesting man. But he wrote a book called The Great Divorce, which was a allegorical bus ride from hell to heaven. And as they're visiting heaven, uh, 
they see this beautiful woman trailed by people and animals and pixies and all kinds of stuff. And she's this beautiful, radiant woman there in heaven. And on earth, her name was Sarah. But she, as she comes toward the area where these visitors from hell were, she sees um, a, a tall man uh, who is um, an actor of sorts. And it, it, it at first appears that he is holding a, a little troll or dwarf on a leash. Uh, but as, as this woman starts talking to these two people, she calls, she refers to them as darling. And it, it becomes clear that she's speaking to the dwarf and not the actor or the tragedian is what Lewis calls him. And the, and it, on closer inspection, it is the little dwarf, the little troll that is holding the leash of the tragedian rather than the other way around. Well, the dwarf at first is magnanimous. Uh, the, the woman asks him for forgiveness for all the things she did in life. And, and at first the little dwarf is being, uh, is being magnanimous about it. Uh, but, they speak in unison, pressing her, you know, did you miss me? And she tells him, you can be, you can be happy about that and everything else. And the tragedian keeps bringing up a trivial kindness that he did to her during life and said, oh, you didn't express gratitude for it. And you didn't know, you know, you didn't even notice. And, and he's being really kind of petty and, and ultimately he says, I can't forget it. I can't forget it. And I mean, it's literally like giving him the last or giving her the last stamp in the house so she can write a letter to a friend. I mean, it was a very small kindness, but the tragedian can't forget that she didn't thank him for it. And the tragedian says, I could forgive all that they've done to me, but for your miseries, he's saying to the little dwarf. And the lady says, don't you understand? There are no miseries here. And the dwarf says, do you mean to say you've been happy? Of course, this is a loaded question. He means, do you mean to say you've been happy without me? These two, if you haven't figured out, were married in life. And she says, darling, you only think I must have been miserable if I loved you. But if you'll only wait, you'll see it isn't so. Things are different here in heaven. She says, I am in love, in love. Do you understand? Yes, now I love truly. And the tragedian asks another loaded question. You mean you did not love me truly in the old days? And Sarah says, only in a poor sort of way. And she explains that earthly love is a craving to be loved more than it is to love others. And... Uh, she asks for forgiveness and she says, I loved you for my own sake because I needed you. And he asks another loaded question. Now you need me no more? And she said, of course not. She says, I'm full now, not empty. I am in love himself because God is love, right? And she says, we have no need for one another now. We can begin to love truly. Kind of a profound idea that we can... We can love someone when we stop needing them. 
Because when we need them to some degree, they're, we're objectifying them, right? And he said he would rather have seen her dead at his feet than to hear her say those words. And Sarah pleads with him, let go of that chain. It is you I want, not that tall tragedian. And the light that, that had reached him uh, had reached him against his will. And this was not the way he had pictured eventually meeting Sarah, and he couldn't accept it. And she t he tells her, you might be sorry afterwards that you have driven me back to hell. I know when I'm not wanted, you know, and so on. And she says, here is all joy. Everything bids you to stay. And the tragedian says, on terms you might offer to a dog. And she says, don't let it talk like that. She's speaking to the dwarf about the tragedian. And, and he says, you don't even know my sufferings. And she says, stop acting. It's no good. He is killing you. Let go of the chain. Stop using other people's pity in the wrong way. Those who choose misery can hold you up to ransom. And she said, did you think joy was created to live under threat? And she says profoundly, our light can swallow up your darkness. And the tragedian says, do not you love me? And she says, I cannot love a lie. I am in love, not out of it. And out of it, I will not go. And the lie, of course, was all of the made-up misery and stories of the tragedian who was the alter ego of the real man that she had loved in life. At, but the, tra the, the, the dwarf, the real person, got smaller and smaller and smaller until he vanished. And the tragedian, the actor that had consumed him, picked up the chain and swallowed it. And one of the bystanders thought that this was a very tragic thing to see. But the guide said the demand of the loveless and self-imprisoned, that they should be allowed to blackmail the universe, that till they consent to be happy on their own terms, no one else shall taste joy, that things should that this should be the final power, that hell should veto heaven. And of course, saying hell cannot veto heaven. And so the woman picked up after seeing this tragedy and walked along singing happily because hell hath no power over heaven. And, and she grieved for a moment. She grieved for a moment. She had a few tears. But ultimately, she moved on. And I want to tell you that that business of hell having no power over heaven, it exists in our thoughts. Like Joseph Smith taught in section 93, the condemnation or the poison, as Kathy mentioned, is when the light is offered to us, but we don't receive it, that instead of accepting the truth as it is, 
we hang all sorts of judgments on it and shame and other meanings uh, that weigh us down and keep us stuck and keep us in pain. And I really want to plead with you guys, uh, if you're going through all this as we did, the sooner you can come to realize that your stories are running you, the sooner you can start to see the light. You know, and that was such a beautiful story. I'm so glad you shared that in this this podcast because it so signifies the power of thought and even the power of love. And what a tragedy that he couldn't even understand that energy of love that she was in. She couldn't, he couldn't receive it. He refused it um, because he was so stuck in those stories. Right. He was stuck in his stories and he was manipulating and asking loaded questions and everything was to get her to feel a certain way instead of authentically seeing the truth for what it is. And in heaven, there is no misery. Yeah. It's a, yeah. So it's a powerful, powerful lesson, power of thought. Um, thanks so much for joining us. And remember, any time is right, the right time for more love in your life. Thanks for listening to Love in Later Years. And we love you guys. And uh, thank you for joining us. And we'll see you next time.